This week on the Backtable Podcast. I break down the risk factors into risks factors dealing with disease biology and risk factors that deal with disease extent. The disease extent risk factors, in my mind, I give them like one point. And those are things like PSA density, PIRADS5, which is a measure of disease volume, like I mentioned before, 1.5 centimeters or EPE. Those are all one point. And then the two point things are things that have to do with your disease biology, because these are things that give you metastatic potential, like incurability potential. And those things are, we mentioned introductal cancers, cribriform can be more aggressive, if the guy was a known BRCA2 mutated guy. But then importantly, then the, one of the topics today is their genomics. And specifically, Decipher is the most validated, like I mentioned, NCCN gives it level one evidence backing its ability to be prognostic for metastatic progression. And most of us around the US are using Decipher as our genomic test of choice. If that's high risk, it can be bad news bears. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is brought to you by Verisite, provider of the Decipher Prostate Genomic Classifier. Decipher Prostate is a test for patients with localized prostate cancer that can help personalize treatment. Every patient and their prostate cancer is unique, and Decipher Prostate can provide meaningful insight into the aggressiveness of each individual's patient's tumor. Because the Decipher score is derived solely from the genomic characteristics of the tumor, it provides information not available through already known clinical and pathologic factors. Decipher high-risk patients generally benefit from earlier or intensified treatment, while Decipher low-risk patients may be ideal candidates for monitoring or less overall treatment. Decipher prostate is the most validated gene expression test in localized prostate cancer with level one evidence in national clinical practice guidelines and more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, including more than 65,000 patients. Visit verisite.com decipher to learn more. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ashley Ross at Northwestern University. Welcome to the show, Ashley. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure, Ashley. You know, when I was thinking about this somewhat specific talk regarding bringing in next generation molecular classifiers into our active surveillance algorithms, you're literally the first person that came to mind. You've done a tremendous amount of work in this field. I think you understand it kind of practically and analytically and, and really look forward to, to picking your brain on it. That's very generous of you. I'm hoping that I can uh, kind of live up to those standards, but I'm sure we're going to have a good discussion. And I think when we talk about surveillance, it's hard not to make it a little bit of a PSA screening talk and diagnostics. But when patients are coming in, let's just say elevated PSA referral, in your ideal world, what transpires between an elevated PSA and say, for instance, a biopsy? That's actually a great point and a great starting point. And I think that the where this dovetails in, as you were kind of leading to, is we're trying to avoid the diagnosis of what would have been classified as NCCN, very low-risk prostate cancer, or let's just say small amounts of low-grade prostate cancer. In many ways, we're trying to avoid that entirely. That's disease that obviously should only be surveyed as a management option, but it'd be better just not to diagnose this and not to give patients anxiety over it. And how do you avoid that? You know, the AUA just came out with their new guideline statement, and they maybe weren't firm enough. I mean, honestly, in every situation possible, 
you should be doing something else between the PSA and a biopsy. And that something else should eventually lead you to an MRI prior to the biopsy, as long as the gentleman doesn't have some contraindication, like a pacemaker that's not compatible. At my institution, we have access to prostate health index. Not everybody has that, but as a biomarker, I tend to like it. It has a much better sensitivity and specificity than PSA alone, and it's dirt cheap, so it's really of low cost. If you don't have that, there's a bunch of other tests on the market that can help sort of determine is this PSA due to a large prostate inflammation or is it really prostate cancer related? Now, you may or may not take that step of this interim biomarker. For me, like I said, prostate health index under 27, I don't do anything else. I just watch the guy. You know, you could use percent free, percent free over 25 is a good sign. However, that only captures a smaller fraction of the population. Other people use things like MIPS or 4K score or other tests out there, exome, DX. But then I think that you want to do a MRI. Now, MRI is where there's really like quite frankly level one evidence that it's going to help us. And it's going to help us by reducing biopsies by over 30%, maybe even up to 50%. And if we do a biopsy, it's going to help us with its positive predictive value and targeting. In my shop, I tend to do all my biopsies with MRI guidance. And so essentially, ideally, the patient would have an elevated PSA, maybe an interim test, but then go to an MRI. If the MRI is clean, PIRADS 1 or 2, defer a biopsy. There's a lot of people with a PIRADS 3 score that could defer the biopsy. And then, you know, some PIRADS 3, most of your PIRADS 4 and 5, because remember, we should only be PSA testing people who we think need it, like 10-year survival, et cetera. You're going to want to do a biopsy to figure out what's going on. And I think that that, to your point, sorry to be long-winded, you're going to limit the detection of clinically insignificant disease, and you're not going to miss clinically significant disease or just miss a small fraction of the men that might have clinically significant disease that you'll probably pick up the next year as you follow them. That's perfect. And um, I think it's going to get increasingly more interesting and complex as some of these secondary prostate cancer screening tests and their results, which maybe led to an MRI and a diagnosis of a indolent prostate cancer may factor into all of the bits of information, which of course we're going to cover here extensively as we think about surveillance, surveillance regimens, counselings for the likelihood of coming off of surveillance. So I think bottom line, ideal world, PSA, MRI, MRI, ultrasound fusion, biopsy, whether that's transperineal, transrectal, cognitive, or actual fusion, inbore, that's kind of the best case scenario. And I would agree. I should note, there's one thing, you know, people have asked me, what's the limitation? What's keeping us from that? And I think that there's a few major things. And I know it's not the topic of this podcast, but since we have a listening audience and something that I think I have to double down on myself now that I really see the problem, you know, MRIs have a few problems in prostate land. They can be expensive. They can be hard on the patient because they're, you know, about an hour if you do with contrast. There can be access issues. And again, with contrast, that makes it an hour. And then finally, and there can be quality issues where the quality of the MRI is not good enough for a fusion. The quality of the read or the MRI sequences itself is not good enough for an adequate interpretation, or the reader is not qualified. And I think that, I think this year, you know, I always try to have at least one or two like sort of missions in my back pocket, something I want to push forward. I think this year, one of those missions is, is really lobbying whichever way we can. Right now, it's, it's a grassroots thing through your back table urology that the AUA get together with the American College of Radiology and say, you know what, we need a way to certify readers, certify centers 
to do processed MRIs so we can have some consistency. And then the second part is, I think we really need to move towards biparametric MRI like Europe has done for screening. That means drop the contrast. That way there's no nurse needed in the, in the MRI suite. Some places require radiologists there when you have the contrast from uh, contrast reactions. So no nurse, 10 minute scan, easy in, easy out, increases the capacity thus by about fivefold. And I know that's off topic, but I think that that's one of the things that we should all be thinking about in our back head is, do we really need to be doing triphasic multiparic MRI? Yeah, I think everything you mentioned, and on top of that, I'm not young and I'm not old, but for practices that may be a little bit more mature, getting an MRI for a PSA, interpreting that, having the infrastructure to actually act on that is not a foregone conclusion. And now you're taking a bread and butter urologic diagnosis, like an elevated PSA, and you're referring that out. And uh, I don't mean to sound like people have nefarious kind of interest there. It's just adoption of a new technology. You and I might not think of it that way, but it could be for the other dude, just like doing HIFU or robots, et cetera. So, and I guess we talked about the ideal, and then there's going to be the very real patient comes in with a 12 core biopsy and they've got some type of prostate cancer. Right. So, and we'll probably talk a little bit about both of those scenarios and next steps and so on and so forth, but maybe starting with the patient that comes in from the outside, who's got a biopsy demonstrating prostate cancer. Talk us a little bit, like using a fine tooth comb, every bit of information that you're gleaning at that point and everything that you're going to be obtaining to help make your management decisions. So usually I'll kind of frame it from the way I talk to the patient and, and that kind of fills in what the rest of it is. Patient essentially who comes in with prostate cancer into your office wants to know four things. Why did they get the prostate cancer? How much is in their body, the stage? How aggressive is what they have? And what are we going to do? So the first thing I tell them, you know, why did they get this prostate cancer? I tell them most likely it's because they're male and they got a little bit older. Those are the two biggest risk factors. There can be a genetic component, and that obviously depends on the aggressiveness of the prostate cancer for high-risk disease or metastatic disease, we're looking at, you know, 5 to 10% will have some kind of like DNA damage repair protein abnormality. And sometimes people who are, have localized disease have a strong family history. And I'll, I'll put, you know, male increased age, and then I'll put genetics, and I'll ask them a little bit, do you have a strong family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer in the family? And I'm trying to tease out, obviously, BRCA2 is the big component and also see if they're a candidate for, for germline testing. We can get into that a little bit m later. The second question is, okay, now you want to know how much is in your body. And that's the stage. And I talked to the patient a little bit about nowadays, we think about the stage both like, you know, we always used to, are you clinically localized or are you metastatic? But also we think about, well, what's the bulk of the disease in your prostate? And so this is, comes back to our MRI discussion. If you are a practitioner who's getting an MRI first, you've got some idea of local regional staging when the person comes in. If you haven't done the MRI first, then I think that that's important to understand local regional staging. Even if today's topic is on surveillance, even if we're thinking about surveying a person, that comes into play. So for, for the audience, probably familiar, but PIRAD's five lesions, for example, in the definition, it has to be 1.5 centimeters in size, or the radiologist has to think there's definitive extraprostatic extension. 
you know, there was a nice paper by, I think it was Lenny Marx's group at UCLA that looked at pirates, five lesions and surveying them. And he found that half of them would come off surveillance within two years with four plus three equals seven disease. And then also focal therapy, which you might get into today, also is contingent upon that if you're adopting that in your practice. So I'll say, okay, we want to understand your stage distantly and locally. Distantly, if the person has unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer or above, we're looking in the chart to see, well, did they do a some kind of staging workup for distant disease? Myself, I would use, again, I'm kind of privileged. I'm at a large center, and I've only really practiced at large centers or in you know metropolitan areas, but a PET PSMA is now my standard for the unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer and above. They get their local imaging with their MRI and their distance staging is PEPSMA. But if they haven't had that, have they had a bone scan and CT? And you know, I'm talking to the patient about that. And I'm also bringing up the PEPSMA at that time too, if they have unfavorable intermediate risk disease and above. If they have favorable intermediate or low risk disease, so the Gleason gray groups one and twos, and then I'm talking to the patient about, well, what's the local stage in your prostate? You know, I'm looking at the chart to seeing what did the other guy feel with their finger for their, for their T stage. And I'm looking at the uh, patient's records to look for that MRI and how much burden was there. And I'm sort of looking at the pathology report too to understand what's the volume of disease. If I'm really on my, on my game, you know, when I'm looking at the pathology report, I'm not just looking at number of cores involved, but I'm also looking at if it's available, if they made measurements of the cores. So not just like you had a core and it was 40% involved with three plus four equals seven disease with 10% pattern four, but was that core 1.5 centimeters in length? Was that a fragmented core that was three millimeters in length? And I think actually a lot of our efforts right now, I know that everyone has pie in the sky stuff for digital pathology and that maybe it's going to be even prognostic and this or that. I think one of the early metrics we're going to get is some better idea of volume of disease and like quantitative sort of disease amount, benign versus cancerous. But regardless, that's what we're looking at for stage. And what the patient wants to know, I know that's not the question for the audience, but the patient wants to know is, are they clinically localized where I'll then draw a little squiggly line? to make equals curable, or are they, you know, metastatic, we're looking at containable. And then the next question is, okay, if it's clinically localized, like most of our surveillance candidates, obviously, then the question is, well, how aggressive is it? And there you're looking for the Gleason grade as the first kind of metric, and you're telling the patient, well, what does it look like under the light microscope? And the Gleason grade groups are nice to talk to the patients about, and I usually draw one and five on both sides. One gets a smiley face, five is a frowny face, and I show them where they are. And say the guy's a two. And then for two, I say that's in the old system, that's three plus four equals seven. Three is the best. Four is like some you know, more aggressive stuff. What's the percentage of pattern four? Should be looking at that. We're going to talk about surveillance. Over 20, 25%, I think is a bad sign. Is there any pattern four variants? There's not a lot of research here, but the research we have says that cribriform pattern four might be a little bit more aggressive. You know, introductal might be worse candidate for surveillance, and introductal might be associated with genetic predisposition for prostate cancer. And then I talk to the patient and I say, the other thing to understand risk is what we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is what are the blueprints of the cells looking like? What goes beyond the what the cells look like under the microscope, which can be somewhat subjective and also can't really inform you fully of the biology. Can we look at the gene level with some kind of genomic testing? We'll get into that later. I tend to use Decipher in my practice and that can stratify you more so. And then finally comes the million dollar question, what are we going to do? And what are we going to do is based on the patient's health preferences, and what we think the disease is going to do if treated or untreated. And I usually, the first question there, which I think we'll, you know, I'll stop and let let you bridge into the next thing is the question of, do we need to treat or can we observe as our initial strategy? And if we observe, what I tell the patient is we're going to be on 
with the idea is that your patient, your disease is going to be on one of three lines. And we should picture an x-axis of time and a y-axis of getting worse. And if we choose surveillance, all cancers pretty much are going to get worse. The question is that there's going to be a threshold of treatment. And I usually draw a dotted line on the around the y on a horizontal y-axis and say this is the threshold that everyone's going to agree you need to be treated. Your line could be a line that progresses with such a slow slope that you never need treatment. Or your line could be a line where you're going to need treatment in the next five years where we're going to see it coming and we're going to treat you without missing any opportunities. Or your line can be kind of like a logarithmic takeoff line, in which case one year from now or two, you're going to reclassify and reclassify in a way that we will have wished we had treated you earlier. And the question is, how do we determine which one of those three lines really kind of flat, gradual slope, or like logarithmic are you on? It's really long-winded. I'm sorry for that, Aditya, but, but that's where we are. There's nothing long-winded about it. It's fantastic and it's thorough. And I do think that probably to keep it somewhat digestible, we'll focus in on our, maybe our favorable intermediate risk and below cancers. And then we'll also focus on people with at least call it a 10 to 15 year life expectancy. And then of course, there's going to be extended spectrum, right? Your 82 year old who's had three heart attacks and a stroke and comes in with a grade group five. Okay, fine. We'll watch you. But all right. Fantastic. So I love it. You started out with family history, germline testing. You know, the numbers I have are 12% metastatic, four or 5% localized. I do think dialing in on that history, as you mentioned, is critical. And one of the things that I actually find is a bit confusing to patients sometimes is comparing and contrasting genomic testing and germline testing. Does that ever come up in your chats with patients? Yeah, it comes up all the time. You know, what I explain to them is, well, there's, and there's, and actually I should say more for that, it comes up with providers all the time too. Right now, the NCCN, when it looks at things that predict how the cancer is going to behave, it looks at prognostic tests. It gives like a level one certification of evidence for genomic tests, specifically Decipher is the only one in that category. And then it talks a little bit about Artera AI, which is a newer test that hasn't yet been validated outside of radiation patients, but that looks at the digital pathology. And then it has a level four evidence, meaning there's just one study not cooperated about genetics. But that genetics that they're talking about, those studies are looking at not only things like BRCA, but we're seeing the emergence of polygenic risk signatures that can tell you what's your SNP signature that's going to tell you, the individual, beyond your family history, if what's going to happen in terms of developing a cancer. Regardless, for your actual question, so providers are getting com- confusion there too, but for the, for the patient, what I tell them is your genetics is what you inherited from mom and dad, and you know it drove your predisposition to developing this cancer. And more so, in some cases, the cancer itself can be driven by that genetic abnormality. The genomics is better said as like a test looking at what's your cell doing? What's it doing in terms of what genes are turned on? What's driving it? I don't go this deep with the patients. They usually accept that and we go to the next step. But sometimes when patients are really confused and they say, just explain it to me even more simpler, I tell them that, look, your body DNA is like the Library of Congress. You're not allowed to check out any books from the Library of Congress. And it has all the information in the Library of Congress. And that's your DNA. But the DNA is all the knowledge. And then, you know, what your cell is doing when it wants to do something, it goes to the Library of Congress and it starts Xeroxing pages, like the instructions of what to do, and it takes that away. And those Xerox copies are your RNA. And so if I want to know what the cell's doing, I can look at the RNA. What are they Xeroxing from the Library of Congress? And if the patient still looks confused and they're like, well, I still don't get it, and I'm feeling a little bit punchy, 
I'll say, hey, have you seen that movie Seven? And they say, oh, yeah, that's a great thriller. I'm like, okay, how did they catch the killer? How did they know it was him? They, like, they were like, oh, they looked and saw what books did he check out of the library? I was like, great. The books they checked out of the library in that case was the RNA. The, the whole library is the DNA. We want to know, are your cells killers? You know, did they check out the wrong books from the library or are they not? But I got to feel pretty punchy to have the discussion derailed to that point. Usually I'm just telling them that genomics is looking at what are the cancer, your cancer specifically, what is it specifically doing right now? Or what its biological potential is, not like what did mom and dad give you that then caused the seed of cancer to develop? I like that. And I might have to start using the library and the seven analogies. Those totally resonate. I love it. I mean, so germline testing, genomic testing, which we'll talk about. There's the MRI, there's a cores, there's a core involvement, the pattern for the variants, PSA density, which I'm sure is also something that you're that you're factoring in. There's a ton of information that we have. And so one practical question, especially for the folks coming in from the outside with their biopsy in the community, not MRI. And let's say you get an MRI, nothing overly offensive. Does surveillance for you start at that time of initial biopsy or do you like confirmatory biopsies or is it case by case? It's a great distinction you're making because even in the literature, for those that kind of go through the literature, sometimes you're looking at literature where they're talking about a quote unquote surveillance series, but it's actually setting the period of time where you're qualifying that man for surveillance. And so a lot of times, just to your point, I'm telling the gentleman, like, we want to figure out are you actually qualified for surveillance? Let's say the guy comes in and has anything but very low risk prostate cancer. So very low risk prostate cancer, I know the AUA is getting away from that definition a little bit, but the NCCN definition of very low risk prostate cancer, which just if there's trainees and residents on or just as a refresher, was originally developed to kind of find out what would be the pathological correlates on a sectin biopsy that would equal like half a centimeter or so of low grade disease. And to reach those criteria, you had to have, you know, of a sectant, less than three cores involved, less than 50% of a core, all releasing grade group one. We know a lot about those guys. We have like more than 20 plus years of information on those guys. And all that information says it's safe to follow them. And that information came even before MRI was used in practice, right? But those guys also, from your beginning of your talk, and I think you were setting us up for this, I almost never diagnosed that in my practice because I use my MRIs and stuff. And MRI, again, for the group is not to, it is to get the best biopsy you can get when you do a biopsy, but more so as a public health issue is to eliminate doing a lot of unnecessary biopsies, right? So those guys almost never exist. But let's say everybody else, let's take our guy with like three or more cores of Gleason grade group one or our guys with 347 disease grade group two. I'm telling them first, I need to qualify for surveillance. You know, the evidence says that we can watch this. If they had not gotten an MRI, I usually do an MRI about six months after their initial biopsy, sometimes earlier if I really think something is wrong, but I want to survey them. So sometimes three months, I find less than three months, a lot of artifacts. So six months is usually my goal, sometimes three months is early. And then I do a fusion biopsy to qualify them for surveillance. Let's make it easy on us and pretend the guy came in and they've got already had the MRI, they've already had the biopsy, and now they, we have their biopsy results, and then we're going to talk about qualifying them for surveillance. The reality is that surveillance should be offered to basically everybody with favorable intermediate risk disease and less. It definitely should be offered. But as I said before, what the patient wants to know is where are they going to be on these curves. You know, are they going to be on the curve that's flat, that they never need treatment their whole life? And the PROTECT study 
other series have suggested of low-risk disease, that might be up to 50% of the patients. Of favorable intermediate risk disease, that might be up to 25% of the patients, depending on age and other factors. Are they going to be on the, the disease curve where it's going to take them a while to progress, but we're looking at like three years or more of surveillance before we have to think about progression, and that might be a win for the patient of good sexual function, et cetera. And progression will be slow enough that we can treat them to cure. Or are they going to be on the curve where within one year or a couple years, half of them or more are going to have progression to something we really don't want? Four plus three equals seven disease, T3B disease, disease that is going to be less curable. And in this regard, the person who comes in, and we're trying to figure out what's what, and I should tell you, we don't absolutely know because in the surveillance trials that have gone on, they've had faults in two ways. One way, we were just understanding surveillance since the 90s till now in the PSA era, and we were scared about following cancers. And even if they got a little bit worse, people were coming off surveillance. So that was one problem. So we really don't know, you know when to do what. And then the other problem was in other series, they were allowed to progress on surveillance in a way that at least, you know, this side of the pond or in the U.S., I would find sort of unacceptable, like lifelong ADT or something from a guy who was curable is not a win for me. And particularly as we extend surveillance into my guys, I, there's no age cutoff for me. Even if you're 40 or 50, you can, you can be on surveillance in my practice. Um, but as I extend it out, I want to know, well, what's our goal? And so I break down the risk factors into risks, factors dealing with disease biology and risk factors that deal with disease extent. The disease extent risk factors, in my mind, I give them like one point, you know, or yellow flags. And those are things like PSA density, which is a measure of disease volume, PIRADS-5, which is a measure of disease volume, like I mentioned before, 1.5 centimeters or EPE, you know, number of cores involved. Those are all one point. And then the two point things are things that have to do with your disease biology, because these are things that give you metastatic potential, like incurability potential. And those things are, we mentioned introductal cancers, cribriform can be more aggressive. If the guy was a known BRCA2 mutated guy, but then importantly, then one of the topics today is their genomics. And specifically, Decipher is the most validated, like I mentioned, NCCN gives it level one evidence backing its ability to be prognostic for metastatic progression. And most of us around the U.S. are using Decipher as our genomic test of choice. If that's high risk, it can be bad news bears. And I'll just give one example, and then we'll go, we can take a deeper dive into it. So in the music registry, which was a Michigan Consortium of Urologists, Academic and Community, there was a nice paper by uh, Randy Vince and colleagues, and they looked at people that were going on surveillance that had genomic testing with Decipher. And Decipher, again, it's a molecular test looking at from the biopsy, or you can do it on radical too, but in this case, we're talking about biopsies, where you're looking at the RNAs and you're running the whole RNA profile of the genome, but you're looking at this 22 gene signature that has been validated as the best prognostic signature for metastasis, metastatic progression. And it's been valid in other endpoints as well. Now, if you had a, about, if you take favorable intermediate risk patients and low risk patients, in that music registry cohort and in general cohorts, it's somewhere about 15% of the patients, it's ranged between 10 and 20, but 15% of the patients are going to have genomic high risk. And we look at the genomic high risk in that cohort, by one year, half of them had come off surveillance. By three years, 75% had come off surveillance. And that was about, I think, two to threefold higher than the people who had low genomic risk or intermediate genomic risk. And then you could say, well, you know, maybe the patients just got scared. They saw this high risk genomics and they got scared and that's why they came off surveillance. But then actually the telling figure is that for the people who came off surveillance and went to treatment, if their genomic scores were high, 
their chance of biochemical progression, remember everyone would start out on surveillance, their chance of biochemical progression was threefold greater than the guys that had low, low or intermediate genomic risk. And even more scary, although the numbers get small, at their three-year follow-up, almost 40% of them had biochemical recurrence and needed subsequent treatment. So that means that those guys need now went from a one-punch cure to one-two punch, and maybe they're still not cured. And then if you look at the other series that took people with genomics that were otherwise Gleason grade group one or two, so like you're a low and favorable intermediate risk, had genomics, and then you took them to radical. You know, they were people that maybe a little bit of a right-shifted population because you were going to take them to radical. And this includes our Northwestern series that's in preparation right now. But if you look at series that came out of like collaborations between UCSF and Hopkins or ones from Yale, if your genomics is high risk and you're otherwise Gleason grade group one or two, the chance that you have four plus three equals seven disease in that prostate or seminal vesicle involvement is 40% as opposed to 10% if you're genomically low risk. So 40% chance you're following something that none of us would want to follow in someone with a 10-year survival. And so I think that's what's pushing that group into um, this sort of like red flag area. And one last thing I'll say, there was a nice study at the AUA. It was a, a kind of a SEER registry is finally linked into the um, genomics. And Jim Hughes' group and others have made the first publication on the SEER registry. It's like 2,000 patients that had genomics with Decipher. And they looked at all the different things that would predict that you would take a patient off surveillance or take them to treatment if they were otherwise lower favorable at risk. And those things were what we talked about. Disease volume was high. PSA was a little bit higher. Genomics itself, Decipher, was high. The only thing that actually predicted that 437 or T3B pathology was the high genomics. The Actually, the volume of percent pattern three, you know, even the, the small amounts of pa uh, pattern four were not as predictive. So again, it's long-winded, but essentially when we're qualifying for surveillance, I look at my risk count. And I look at risks that have to do with volume and risks that have to do with disease risk, you know, the cellular risk. And if you have a score of like, you know, more than three, so I'll, you know, then I tell you, look, surveillance at your own risk. We're going to definitely do a confirmatory biopsy at one year because this gets even more nuanced. We don't know how often we got to do confirmatory biopsies and evaluations. But if you have these higher risks and you want to do surveillance, we got to do, do the biopsy at one year, even if you already were qualified on an MRI. And you have to tell the people that, look, there might be a 50% chance you're going to have some progression that's meaningful, and it's unlikely that you're going to be on surveillance for five years plus. So we have to think about that 10% to 15% population, I have to, have to really think about being pound foolish, like penny wise pound foolish. And the flip side, genomics, I used to be really scared with Klotz's data. I used to get really scared about following favorable intermediate risk disease. If genomics look good, if your volume looks good, I've got those guys on surveillance for the last five years, and I've been really pleased to see that I'm not getting burned. We might have to break that into pieces, Aditya. I'm sorry. That was a big... They're so comprehensive, Ashley, that I don't even feel like interrupting. But uh, just a couple of thoughts. Early on, when I started out as a uh, independent practitioner in 2016, surveillance, of course, had been here, but you know, extended spectrum surveillance higher volume grade group one, younger patients was still a little bit dicey. I mean, I was paranoid. I didn't want somebody to go from curable to uncurable under my watch. I still feel that way. I mean, you kind of talked about your three trajectories, trajectory A, which is kind of rapid progression. I feel like we're able to identify those patients or we certainly need to make an effort to identify those patients. And then the other two trajectories are, it's a flip of a coin, you know, protect 15 year data out 15 years, 50 to 7% chance of requiring treatment, which is, it's kind of a hard concept for me to convey to a patient is that we're starting out on surveillance, but there's a really good chance that you may not end up on surveillance. But even going back to what you were mentioning about qualifying patients, 
I've gone from algorithmic reflex biopsies at X, Y, and Z intervals to also engaging in shared decision-making. And that's going to take in all of the factors that you'd mentioned, the density, the core involvement, the MRI. You know, if there's EPE and it's grade group two, I'm nervous. But some of those, and biopsy tolerance, if the person's like, that was the most miserable experience of my entire life, that actually counts a little bit to me. But I actually will start bringing in some of the things like genomic classifiers in those basically non very low risk patients, which I think it's a bit of a disservice that that's gone because it was kind of like, okay, you're good to go, rock and roll, barring anything catastrophic, you're going to be fine. But for my higher volume grade group one, younger patients or favorable intermediate risk, even trying to decide what our schedule of PSAs and MRIs and biopsies is going to be, I find it useful some, sometimes to have some information. Any comments on that? Yeah, I think the two things. One is if you do see the, just like you mentioned, I'll just tell you what I'm doing for my low volume, low risk patients. For everybody, I'm doing PSA every six months and a rectal exam every year. And so I'm seeing them in clinic at least once a year and just touching base with them. My low volume, low risk patients, as you mentioned, what I'm doing for them is I'm telling them if everything else looks hunky-dory, no doubling of the PSA, no new clinical exam findings, then I'm telling them at two years, I want to get an MRI confirmatory and do a biopsy. And if that still shows small volume, low risk disease, then that is the last biopsy you're ever gonna have on surveillance because we found your disease by accident and we're gonna treat you like someone who's just getting prostate cancer screening with the exception of we're gonna do your PSA twice a year instead of once a year. So I completely agree with you on that. For my other low risk guys, I think we just don't know. I'm trying to put together a trial that's just taking me a little bit longer to get it right, which can give us a framework so we can understand for the people who are into research, like, you know, what are the different coefficients of these risk factors? But I agree, shared decision-making around, do we need to do the biopsy or not? And to your point, in real-world practice, it's based on a lot of factors. Is your MRI clean? Like when you get it again, you know, is there, you know, disease you can't see? Is a PSA density looking like it's 0.1 or not? You know, did you start out like with just a few cores of leasing grade group one disease? And is the patient getting older? And as you get more data, one of my mentors, Dr. Carter, was working a lot about this. You know, obviously the patient's risk changes every year that you confirm stability of disease or every multiple years you confirm stability, the risk changes. So I completely agree with you. I do think like even though you can skim the people off the top pretty well, because like you said, you're not old, you're not young, you're sort of top of your game, you know, kind of mid-career guy. Some people, as surveillance gets more accepted, it's, it's important to tell some of the patients, like, this isn't for you. Like you mentioned, the Pyrads 5, 3 plus 4 equals 7 disease guy, you're going to get burnt. The Pyrads 5, Gleason, grade group 2, decipher high-risk guy, you're going to get burned hard. I can just tell you, that patient is going to be unhappy with you. You're going to have to do like surgery plus radiation the next year, or you'll have to do radiation plus ATT the next year. So just for the audience, there are some things that you just, if you have multiple, it's like soccer, sorry for all the analogies, you've got, you know, multiple yellow cards or some red cards, you got to get that guy out of the game. But the other people, like you said, our job now as investigators at academic places, but certainly, you know, for people in private practice, they take all the information together. That low genomics risk guy, remember Protect was evaluating people, I think every four years or something like that, and maybe a little bit loose, but I think there's something to be learned there. Take all your factors together, have shared decision-making with the patient. You know, if the biopsy was uncomfortable, try to find out from them where was that discomfort. And most of mine are transperineal biopsies I do in the clinic. But, you know, some people 
just feel better just going to the OR. That's a little bit of a bigger run for a short slide, but some people need it. And, you know, you're definitely right. Your threshold, you know, kind of being in practice longer, you know, builds your intuition and you can have that intuition and you can definitely share decisions with the patient. But never, this is a hard thing, but you never want to hold back too much. Like if you feel in your gut, this guy really needs a biopsy, sometimes the patient's kind of talking me out of it. And I know that it's a shared decision, but you actually can see what's going to happen to them sometimes better than they can see, right? That's why we did residency. You know, it's that exact scenario. Maybe we'll run through some, you know, kind of common clinical scenarios to frame this a little bit, but just a couple of thoughts. I mean, absolutely. Sometimes it takes somebody something additional to convey the aggressiveness of this and something objective that's not read by a pathologist or sampling error by a urologist, et cetera, like a genomic classifier can be useful. And on the flip side, you know, I have these highly educated, super healthy people in La Jolla that are like, doc, it's cancer. I want it out. And I'm trying to walk them off the ledge and saying, hey, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I understand your concerns. And this is going to be a dynamic process for the first time you heard cancer, you're freaking out and you don't want to die. And over time, you're going to understand the quality of life implications, et cetera. But let's be deliberate. Let's get some additional information and maybe this will help ease some of your fears. I've found that if I'm going to get a genomic classifier, that it's incredibly helpful to run through what the output is going to look like and actually run through what my thresholds are to do something. Otherwise, it becomes extremely abstract and confusing to try to sit with the man and say, here's your likelihood of metastasizing, dying, et cetera. Can you talk us a little bit about how that works for you? Honestly, so like I, as I mentioned, I use Decipher as my genomic classifier. I don't usually even show them the report. I mean, there's some rich information on there, but they just have to understand kind of high level, you know? And what I tell them is, if they're Gleason grade group one, I tell them that what we're looking for is you really, you're a good candidate for surveillance. If that Decipher comes back low risk, I tell them it's going to come back low, intermediate, or high. If it comes back low risk, we know you should stay on surveillance and maybe we can actually space out your biopsies. If it comes back high risk, you're in this minority population and you know we have to really be hawkish if we're going to follow you. Most of my Gleason grade group one guys I follow, I tell them that, look, you will likely progress, but I usually will follow them up to a year. But for some of them, that's the guys that I actually take to radical. The rare people in my practice with Gleason grade group one are the decipher high Gleason grade group one. And usually they have one other yellow flag. An intermediate risk, you know, is kind of middle of the road. If I look at the Northwestern data and I look at what's the frequency of people I would never want to follow, the pathology at radical is 437 or T3B. For intermediate decipher, then, I mean, low intermediate than high, it goes from about 15% to 30% to 40%. So intermediate actually has some real risk. So regardless, I've already decided to myself, if this guy has a low risk decipher, and they're even up to Gleason grade group two, favorable intermediate disease, I'm going to tell them that surveillance is a really viable option. If they have low risk cancer, like, you know, Gleason grade group one, and the decipher is low, then basically, you know, you shouldn't do this with the data, but you can do this with the sort of talking head stuff. So I pull out whatever I need to do. Like I tell them, look, you know, you got low grade disease. We found it so early, it probably doesn't want treatment. And I tell them one of two things. What I used to tell them is, look, I took an oath and the oath was to do no harm. And me doing anything to you right now, when I have no idea if your cancer is ever going to get worse, is doing harm. I can guarantee you it's going to harm your sexual function in some way. Even my people who have 
quote unquote perfect directions, if I really dr drill down on it, that, you know, is it exactly like it was before surgery? They'll say, well, no, it's a little bit off or something like that. And, and I'll, I'll know it's a little bit of harm. Or even if they have something, God forbid, happens to them, it's a little bit of harm. And I tell them I can't do it. It's against my Hippocratic oath. Or now, you know, Dr. Egener, Cooperberg, and others have given us this debate about is Gleason Gray Group 1 even cancer? And I tell the guy, hey, guess what? You know, there's this debate. Should we even be calling this cancer? Or is it a precancerous lesion? Just to help them get, you know, put some buzzwords in. They'll go home. If it's, like you said, that educated La Jolla guy, they'll Google something. They'll get on that New York Times article and, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, this isn't that bad, you know? And the reality, too, if I explain to them the curves that we were talking about, if they're on that curve C, which is the, they can go their whole life and never need treatment, there's, there's no way that we want to like pass up that opportunity. And on the flip side, if I really see those warning flags there, then I'm, then I'm telling them we got to maybe have to do treatment. And in some ways, like I said, for that low-grade disease guy, it can be, can have it on the other end where you just, you know, the patient's going to be in bad, in a bad shape. But to your point, I think that pulling out the, of your cards, these genomics really helping us. And it's not just that they're more objective. They are. It's, you know, actually in almost every study, they are superior to the Gleason grade, which makes sense, right? You're looking at the phenotype from Gleason. Even if you have Epstein reading it, he's looking at the phenotype. The genomics is looking at the molecular biology and particularly Decipher that started out with a genome-wide signature and then drilled down onto what really is driving metastasis or bad potential. It makes sense. The, the reason that you're against genomics, not you, I mean, like one might be against genomics, is this idea of cost. You know, is there cost to the patient, cost to the system? If it can help you collapse decisional uncertainty, make it such that your first move is your best move, you're actually going to save the patient cost, save the system cost, and save the patient's life in some instances. So again, a compound answer, but I agree that genomics helps you on the bookends on two sides. It helps you de-intensify and understand cadence of surveillance, meaning how often you're following, and in intensify. One other thing I should say, which is I've heard some providers say, well, I know what to do, and I don't need the genomics to help me. So if we're talking about special tools, genomics, MRI, other stuff, they're like, I know what to do. I don't need the genomics. It's the rare case I don't know what to do. That is like, I won't say any French, but that's a bunch of hooey, right? For me, the approach I take is I want to get all the information I can on you and your cancer so we can make our best decision. And I don't know without, unless I get the information, I don't know. Now, I'm a little bit on the side of, I think in my practice, like I said, I like to collapse decisional uncertainty. So I sometimes will be an over-tester. You know, so for example, PET-PSMA, I know it's not the conversation, but for staging, I use PET-PSMA on my unfavorable risk, intermediate risk and high risk and above. Because I want to know if I'm going to go in for that surgery, is it going to be curative or not? But some of my colleagues say, look, I'm going to do surgery on this guy no matter what. You know, I don't need to stage him with something that's going to show me that they're not curable by surgery. And I guess so, you know, but like for me, I'd rather give the guy a realistic expectation of what's going to happen to him before I make the decision. But everyone varies in these in these ways. And actually, this kind of comes up to like, there's no standard in how we qualify people for surveillance, how we do the surveillance, what takes someone off surveillance. And actually, like I mentioned for the trials, you know, I think that it's, again, just to plug myself, I'm really trying to put together something together for a trial that we can do nationally where one of the key elements is that we're going to have a committee decide if someone's really progressed on surveillance or not, so that the patient can understand it's not just them and their provider. I mean, I think you're, you're spot on. It is complex. I mean, with the PSMA PET scans, and then, you know, they've got their equivocal rib lesions that don't really make sense, and you're trying to sort that out with your nuclear medicine team. And I think there are absolutely 
naysayers that talk about increasing the complexity or you already have the information that you need. And, you know, I always tell my patients, at the end of our discussion where we've taken in the path and your health and your symptoms and the cribiform and the architecture and your family history, genomic classifier, I tend to use decipher also, there's not going to be a neon light that says, here's what you have to do or here's what you can't do. You know, ultimately you and me assisting you, we're going to have to make a decision. And that decision doesn't have to be always treatment, no treatment. It could very well be how, what surveillance looked like, the timing of that biopsy. I personally find it somewhat comforting to me and the patient to have biopsy confirmation, which, you know, is alpha and omega level in kind of my opinion in terms of what's going on here. So many times it'll help me kind of trigger a biopsy, but, um, you know, some of the other things that just kind of occurred to me, I think the guidelines are consistent with what you described, that if genomic testing is going to impact decision-making, then you should use it, but it shouldn't be routinely used. And I would say maybe those very low-risk patients who maybe shouldn't be used or, or your sicker, more infirm patients. But high-volume grade group one, younger patients, are those kind of... Yeah, I think for me, it's high-volume grade group one. So, you know, more than three cores positive, or I've gone to areas because like the biopsies now we're doing everything was based on these sectin biopsies. But now, like I said, I do these TP biopsies, transperineal. I follow like the precision point, John Davis, like, you know, 10 cores plus my regions of interest. I don't even know what it means anymore to have cores, you know, what cores positive means. So so in other words, I go, I do more than three areas is high volume, or if you have any three plus four equals seven, those are the areas where I'm uncertain and I do genomics. And again, I know that they're saying not routine use. And so I don't know exactly what the guidelines mean there. I think they're obtuse for a reason. And they're only guidelines for a reason too. You know, when I was in private practice, which I was for a few years between Hopkins and, and uh, you know, being up here in Chicago. Sure. That's where we overlapped and shared patients. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I found that the genomics was a big normalizer because like it could help me overcome the idea of like people doing the biopsy, not exactly how I did it. And, you know, essentially the pathologist might not be my pathologist. I mean, I could get a second opinion path read. I think that's one of the things that's going to kind of go by the wayside a little bit if you embrace genomics more. But like that, that's just for my qualifying thing. Like you said, then you're going, you are going for confirmatory biopsy and so am I. And the question is, when is that confirmatory biopsy happening? If there's too many like weird things that went into the workup of the patient before they got to you, not weird things, but like if it just wasn't done the way you would do it, no MRI was done for whatever reason. Now they're coming to see you. They ha you have access. You know where everything can happen. You weren't sure. The biopsy came back and they had, there was just two cups left, right. And there was like three cores in each cup. You know, it's just, just bizarro land, you know, half the cores say fibromuscular stroma, no prostate identified, you know, then you're going to do your quote unquote confirmatory biopsy early, you know, otherwise if they come in with some, you know, good findings and you're wondering what to do, you could do the genomics on what they had and it could give you some some sense of like waiting for a year or even like I said, there's some situations I wait for two. And the nice thing about that is you're giving the cancer time to do something or not do something. And you're giving the patient time to get comfortable with the idea that they can live with this cancer. I think you actually really brought it back to, you know, it's early on, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, do we need to treat this or not? Do we need to diagnose it a little bit more intensively or qualify it, as you put it? And if we're not, you know, are you likely to be a non-progressor, a delayed progressor, or a rapid progressor? And, you know, it's, I think to kind of 
distill it down into something digestible, that's our job at that first little bit here. And then the rest of it, you know, transitioning off surveillance, what that surveillance plan exactly looks like in terms of minimizing costs and intensive procedures, those are all kind of gilding the lilies, in my opinion. But first and foremost is we don't want people to slip through the cracks. We want people to feel comfortable with their decisions, make the right decisions, make deliberate decisions. And I feel like, you know, it's another bit of information at that initial critical decision-making that's value-added. Totally agree. Really well said. You know, it's certainly not, especially as we come upon 45 minutes here, it's not the point of this discussion, but I, I kind of get the sense that our colleagues in radiation oncology have been a little bit ahead of the eight ball in terms of taking genomic tests and, and actually devising rational clinical decision makings, hormonal therapy with or without radiation. For us, it could be things like lymph, lymphadenectomy at the time of surgery. There's kind of a whole host of other stuff that we didn't get into, but it's kind of nice to have that information as you're making these decisions. Yeah. And, you know, in our defense as urologists, you know, our treatments are somewhat mechanical, like it's cancer's there, I'm going to take it out. And theirs are biological, you know, like they have to treat the right place. They have to decide how intense, are they adding a modifier like ADT? But yeah, you mentioned it. There's two NCI trials that are around de-intensification or intensification of radiation and ADT dependent upon the decipher genomics. I think we're getting there. I think that actually, you know, just to give us a little bit of credit, it took us a while to understand, are cancers safe to survey? Which cancers are safe to survey? And now we are at a new starting point. I think in the 90s, you know, we saw surveillance trials popping up or registries in the early 90s that were really focused on, is any prostate cancer safe to survey? We just don't know. And I think we've come a long way. And like you mentioned, we're right on the precipice of designing really thoughtful trials of somewhere between biopsying everybody every year and only surveying very low risk disease and the PROTECT trial, which was maybe a little bit too lax. Can we take all these new technologies and understand which ones are meaningful, which ones aren't, with the idea of de-implementing care or intensifying care? And I also will say, you know, I, one of the, you know, this is like a side point that the patient preferences have a big thing to do with it. There was a guy I operated on recently. He ended up with T2 disease, Gleason grade group one. You know, he had five cores of Gleason grade group one going in. His, you know, decipher was average risk. He had a strong family history, but he didn't have BRCA in his family. He was just strong family history of prostate cancer and breast. And I was a little bit deflated when I got the results back because I thought like, well, maybe I didn't operate on this. Maybe he didn't need this. You know, but it's a younger guy. He he told me, look, doc, he's about three months out. And we were able to do a great operation, great nerve sparing because it was localized disease, you know, and he's continent and potent at three months. And he told me, look, I needed to do this. It's inevitable that I would have progressed. He's like, he's like my age, he's like the early 50s. Uh, inevitable is going to progress. We have to do this. So I think we have to think about like what we can do in the OR to help people. I'm not saying operate on everyone who's pleasing grade group one, but I'm saying like we have to think about what are we compromising by waiting? What are we compromising by operating on someone. And uh, I think like like you nicely framed it, we have all these new tools, genomics, imaging. I think now is the, the next decade is going to be us figuring out how to really implement them so we can modify our initial discussion on qualifying people for surveillance and what their expectations should be, and also understanding how closely they have to be watched or, or, or not. The radiation oncologists have a biological tool. We have more of a mechanical tool it's a good one. And we haven't even gotten into this, but the other frontier that I think we don't have time for tonight and probably a different back table urology is 
how do we put this all together with focal therapy? Should we even be doing it on which folks? Is this how we thread the needle? But that's another 45 minutes. Yeah, it's intriguing. And, you know, I, I actually really appreciate that. Sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit hard on us, on their urologists, but you're right. We've, we've done the heavy lifting on active surveillance, which is the first major mega ultra paradigm shift over the course of our lives. You know, that's massive in terms of first doing no harm. And um, where I think we're quite fortunate to be in a place now where it really is, you know, kind of, you can think that some personalized medicine is starting to creep into, you know, we've got a neoadjuvant PARP inhibitor trial for people that are high risk localized. And, you know, these are just cool things and they may not be home runs, but they're going to be solid base hits that helps us to identify the patients who, who like you very nicely stated, could benefit from intensification, de-intensification, modification. So Ashley, you know, thanks for the the wisdom. And honestly, this has got to be one of the easiest podcasts I've ever hosted. I think you've anticipated any question that would have came up and addressed it perfectly. But as we conclude, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership? One, you know, for your guys with low volume, low grade disease, I think you're already all doing this, but those people should definitely be surveyed, not treated. And, you know, the, the name of the game is how do you de-intensify? For everyone else, you know, genomics can be a very useful tool along with imaging to understand what's the disease extent, what's the disease biologic potential or risk, uh, and that can inform you and your patients to, just like Aditya said, so that you can get an individualized plan for that patient. And that plan can be modified as you go. And then finally, I mean, this has been such a pleasure. It was really nice to see you over the last you know, year or so. Great to work with you when I was back in, in Texas. And um, I really appreciate being on, on Backtable Urology. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. A lot, of, a lot of tips for me to take back to my practice. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.